Titus chapter 2, verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Amen. Friends, it's my, my privilege to welcome Dr. Bruce Winter um, to speak to us this morning. Uh, as you walked in this morning, you will have been given a service sheet. Now, it's a little bit different to uh, the usual service sheet. That will have uh, two talk outlines on it. And uh, the first one is obviously uh, for this uh, uh, gathering right now. And the second one is for the next gathering. So if you're staying for the second gathering today, then uh, keep hold of those sheets. But uh, uh, Bruce, it's a pl pleasure to have you with us. And I'm going to simply hand over to you now. Thank you. <coughs> thank you very much, Scott. And thank you very much for the privilege of coming down here. So I told the men's breakfast, we do have something in common with Port, with Port Macquarie, that we were both set up as penal settlements for the naughty boys from Sydney back uh, some time ago and uh, it's probably true the same today I'm not quite I shouldn't perhaps say that because some of you may indeed be from Sydney <coughs> but it is a great joy to come here and it's been a great privilege to uh, live in your minister's house I do that quite often when I travel and it's great always to have someone who lives to be in a situation where the minister lives in the house about which he preaches and so a very godly family, and I've been very grateful uh, for the fellowship of your minister here. 
Can we just bow our heads in prayer before we begin? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that your word would engage our hearts and minds. And whatever we profitably learn from this word, Father, we pray that nothing in our lives would hinder our wholeheartedly embracing it and bringing forth the fruits that you intended. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Battle of Waterloo was a very important battle in England in the history of Europe. Upon it actually hinged the whole future of England. And in preparation, there was set up a series of signal stations on the major hills between Portsmouth and London. And the aim was that when the uh, vessel brought news of the outcome of this, of this great battle, that that would be signaled from one hill to the other to reach London as quickly as possible. In those days, they were not blessed with email, <coughs> which is a mixed blessing sometimes, as you know. And so it was, the message came of the outcome of this in- incredible battle. And when it got near Winchester, the signalman received this, the, uh, the message, but the fog descended. And so he sent on to London the message, England defeated. And that message went to London, and you imagine the incredible uh, anguish there was in the hearts of those who received that in the capital. When the fog lifted, he decided that he would perhaps send send the message in case it hadn't got through quite right, and it said, England defeated the French. Now, getting to the end of the sentence was very important in the same way the Good Friday message was Jesus defeated, but the Easter Day message was Jesus defeated death. That was the message the disciples received, first of all, that they indeed, that Christ was defeated. Now, the passage read this morning, it's very very significant that in a great deal of contemporary Christianity, people don't get to the end of the sentence. And I want to concentrate on verses 11 uh, through to 14, which is one long sentence. And it's very important that we get right to the end if we're really going to understand what the grace of God means. Because as the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians through Titus on the island of Crete, there were plenty of people who perhaps got part of the message but never got the full message. And this is an urgent letter that Paul is writing to Titus because he's so concerned that Christians will just continue to be shaped by the culture and not by Christ, to be programmed by what they were programmed before they became Christians. And areas in their lives remain totally unchanged and they end up not really as as the, the Christians who are followers of Christ but simply people who've only got part of the message. As I've traveled around uh, in America, in Asia, various parts, I sometimes think that people have only got the first part, but haven't got right to the end of what it means really to understand and to assimilate what the grace of God actually means. (coughs) Because in verse 11, some people just get to the end of that sentence, which says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. And here is something that is so 
uh, outstanding in the first century. Here is a religious system, if I can use that word, that is totally different from all the others. All the other religions believed in what I have to do to inherit eternal life. When Christ comes, this is a message about what God will do to save people. God is our saviour. He is the rescuer. He is the one who sees that we are hopelessly drowning in our suicidal jump into the, into the, the pit of sin. And we are drowning in the consequences of our own lives and our own foolishness and our own subduing of our consciences. And so it is God mounts a rescue operation in which he is going to save and indeed which he saves through the death of his son. And this is called the grace of God. This is a move on the part of God that he need never have made. But he saw the helplessness and so it was that he delivered up his only son to die on the cross so that people could be rescued. And so the Christian message brings to us the starting point, <clears throat> but the grace of God has appeared. There's been an epiphany. This rescue operation for all, it was not restricted to one group, but it was a universal message for all the people on the, on the globe. And this indeed is the opening part of what uh, Paul is writing to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. And there were some people in the first century who saw this was an admission ticket to heaven. This was fantastic. This is all they needed to make sure they carried in their back pocket and now they could live exactly how they wanted to. That was their view. And if one, sometimes one listens on the uh, television to some of the televangelists, the impression is given. All you have to do is to get hold of that ticket and send us the details of your credit card. But let us get hold of this ticket which says to us the grace of God. Just as I have in my back pocket a, a, a swipe card that admits me to a particular place in London. When I go there, I can swipe and the doors open. Well, the people who treat the grace of God as like a ticket, as long as you have that ticket, that's all you need. And therefore, now let's get on and enjoy the good life. The, enjoy your best life now and live it up. <coughs> enjoy all the things that you have, knowing that when that day comes, finally, you have the right swipe card in the back pocket the grace of God. But that's not what this text says. This text goes on to say that it's not our ticket. That's wrong to see it like this. The grace of God has appeared. Yes, it's brought salvation to us, but it's also, the second point, it's also our trainer. <coughs> now, it's become quite an in thing these days when men whose chest muscles have slipped down to the waist <coughs> to go to the gym and to get to, and women also, uh, not that I've observed, but I think that's probably true. <coughs> they go to the gym and they employ a trainer. And his task is to help them not kill themselves on the uh, various things there, <coughs> not try to look like uh, the governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to build up this great chest. But the, uh, his aim is to get them into a healthy position. And so it was, he's a, he's a trainer and he gives them advice you need to do this, 
Now, you mustn't try to pump iron like that. You know, you'll break yourself. All those sorts of things. You'll have a heart attack. No, don't do this. And so the whole purpose of a trainer is that he should help the person get into a fit state. Now, we are told the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us, training us to do certain things, to do three things that are absolutely critical as a consequence of the grace of God that has come to us. We are first of all to renounce, we are second to live, and we are to wait. Those are the three things that the trainer is teaching us to do. We are to, first of all, we are to renounce two things. We are to renounce godlessness. And godlessness is when people live in parts of their lives in which God is absent and God is shut out and God's presence is not needed, thank you very much today. That is what godlessness is, in which people just live their lives and there are certain carved off areas in which God has no real place and people are simply living an autonomous way in their lives. And we are told that we are to renounce godlessness. <coughs> the second thing that the grace of God trains us up to do is to recognize it's totally inconsistent if we are people who are taken with worldly passions. We think of people who are possessed by success. And for them, the goal of reaching the top at all costs is that which drives them. It's a worldly passion because they must appear to be successful and they must portray themselves as successful people. But when the grace of God appears, we recognize that's not what life's about. That's not what we should be pursuing. There are people who also want to pursue power in their lives, control over others, <coughs> over children, relatives, family, things they belong to. And we are told that the grace of God has appeared and says, no, you renounce that. If God has done this most wonderful thing, how can we be people with such pathetic ambitions that we are simply wanting to have power and control? And more than that, worldly passions include sexual passion. People who are driven by, in, indeed, are they are engulfed by this. Now the grace of God appears and says, look, this is just totally out of place. This is absolutely counterproductive to you as a person. This is totally inconsistent in the light of all that, that this God has done for us that a person should live this way. The story is told of Count Zinzendorf in Austria who was a young, powerful, success-driven playboy. And how it was, he rode his horse to in particular in <coughs> And then he required a change of horses so he could go on. And while he was waiting for the horse to be brought to the stable, he entered the inn and there was <coughs> this picture of the crucifixion. He'd seen it many times. But underneath were written these words in German, All this I did for thee, what hast thou done for me? And Zinzendorf was so stung in his heart that it was to transform his life. Well, yes, he knew the grace of God, those things. But you see, he was suddenly arrested. What have you done for me? 
And so it was that Zinzendorf used his estate to found the great missionary movement of the Moravian Brethren, and some of whom went to various parts. Indeed, there were certain who went <coughs> to the slave areas of Jamaica, and they sold themselves into slavery so they could preach the gospel to the slaves. All this I did for thee. What hast thou done for me? And so you can see that to be a Christian is to be someone who has to renounce certain ways of living. These are inconsistent in the light of all this I have done for you. Now you can't live like this anymore. So being a Christian means that Christians are to have no closed cupboards, no secret wardrobes, no shady things that they're hanging on to. There is the need that the grace of God teaches us we are to renounce. The second thing it says is that we also, our trainer teaches us how we should live. We should live a self-controlled life. We should live an, a, a righteous life and we should live a God-honoring life in this world. That's what the grace of God teaches us. All this comes to us <coughs> and therefore <coughs> as we live our lives we are to show there's a difference that the grace of God puts us under an obligation. We cannot be the same people. We have to be different people and we want to be different people because of all that God has done for us. We cannot, in the face of such love and mercy, in the face of such an amnesty that God has granted to us in the gospel, that we can live like this. So we are to wait, we are sorry to renounce, to live, and thirdly, we are to wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so the Christian has a new perspective, has a sense of distance. <coughs> you know, sometimes that you'll take children or grandchildren uh, to the shop and suddenly they are possessed by the fact that they must have an ice cream now or they must have this now and they can put on a performance like Miss Piggy used to do, uh, sort of make great noises because there's no sense of perspective in their life. We must have it now. But we are told that we are to wait for this blessed hope that God has for us, the future. That's where the best is yet to be for the Christian person. And therefore we are waiting for this blessed hope in the midst of a disgusting world in which we live of selfishness, of wickedness, of all the awful things. Pick up the newspaper and you see how bad the news is of how awful it is that people in, the, in a world of affluence, there are those who are starving to death. You think of awful things that are being done, of the awful power, and the world in which we live in spite of the beauty of nature, that it indeed is awful the things that are happening. And therefore we are waiting for that great day, that blessed hope. The concept of hope is that the future comes to us. It's a certain hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You can run if you have a goal. You can run if you see, well, there is a finishing spot. And at the end of that, that is a great place. And that's what the Christian is doing, saying we are running towards that goal. We're waiting as we run the race for the great appearing of our great God and Saviour. <coughs> now, there's some people, of course, who get to that point. <coughs> and say, well, this is sort of tremendous. Yes, I'm renouncing, 
I'm living, I'm waiting. And uh, yes, that's where the sentence ends, but it doesn't end there. It goes on to say that Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. Ah, we are the chosen. Yes, that's good Presbyterianism and it's good Bible also. The concept of being the chosen people of God and to recognize that this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he actually delivered himself up to buy us out of the debt and the mess of sin we were in and to redeem us from all the past. So it's all gone. It's been wiped. It's no longer there. And also to purify for himself a people for his own. And there are some people who relax and say, well, that is a great truth. And it is a great truth that we have been redeemed and we have been purified. And it means in spite of the fact that at night our past may sometimes rise like a ghost as we get older or things we've done. But then we turn to say, yes, well, that may be the truth of what happened, but there is a greater truth as to what, is, what has been done by Christ because he has given himself to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people who reflect his character. The most wonderful thing about my son is that you can recognize him from a distance because he has my good looks. There's no doubt about it. <clears throat> my son Andrew is identifiable and people who meet him and see the name, the surname, say, oh yes, <clears throat> and suddenly he can't escape from the fact that he is his that I am his father and he is the son. But the character is seen. Not only the character, I mean the, the features are seen that my side of the family won the genetic battle and that was a wonderful thing. <coughs> and the same with my grandchildren. One or two of my grandchildren actually are greatly privileged to be in that position <coughs> to bear our side because they married our children, live in England, they married English people, but the Australian genes won and we're very grateful for that. Uh, indeed. But you see, the point is, the real point is that people should be able to recognize the character of Christ in the lifestyle of the Christian person. That's why we were purified and we were cleansed because we could be a people for, for the own, who are owned by Christ and who bear the image of Christ in the way of who they are, the way they relate their connectedness to other people. Now again, there are people who finish at that point. But that's not the end of the grace of God because it says we are to be a people of his own who are zealous for good works. That's the intention. God has redeemed us not simply to be people who now enjoy their best life now. And here's a very important point because quite often grace is seen as something in opposition to good works. But actually, good works are a consequence of grace. They're a consequence. They're like fruit on the tree. There's the root, there's the shoot, and then there's the fruit. And that's what good works are. And unfortunately, sometimes in some of the uh, discussion that goes on in thinking, even theological thinking, that people don't stick to, to the Bible to see that while good works do not justify a consequence of, of being justified 
of receiving the grace of God, a consequence of that is that there is fruit and the fruit are the good works of God's people. You know, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works, your good deeds. And 1 Peter takes that up. In the same way, he says that, that what happens is that people should be able to glorify God because of the good works which they behold. Because you can't hide a light on a hill and the works speak for themselves. Now, I want to say just one or two important things about this because I think it's been lost. We sometimes think that we have to talk the talk but actually, as far as God is concerned, the prior thing is to walk the walk of what it means to live as a Christian and to wake up every day of our lives and ask ourselves, what good things can I do for others? That's the Christian life at, as it were, the grassroots level. What good things can I do that would be a blessing to others? Not for people to wake up and say, well, now the world owes me this. And I'm becoming a grumpy old man because I haven't got this and I haven't got that. <clears throat> or people who are demanding and manipulating. No, we wake up in the morning and the first thing we pray is, Lord, help me to look out for opportunities to do good today. You see, if I can use the word anthropomorphically, when God wakes up, he thinks, what good can I do? Because in the creation, we discover that everything that God does is good. Indeed, when man appears, the whole creator order is very good. And ever since then, God has been doing good. He's been sending rain. He's been sending great gifts to this earth. And he thinks about all the good that he could do. His son went about, what do we discover? Jesus went about doing good. Why? Because good needed to be done. And a consequence of the grace of God is that God's people should grow up in certain places and should recognize that life's not about me, but life is about that God is looking after me so well that now I can think about what blessing can I bestow on others. So when I'm in the street, yeah, there are people I can help in the supermarket. There are things I can do in my neighborhood. There are kind things I can do, phone calls I can make, and seek to be a blessing to other people. And that's what the Christian life is meant to be. That's the end result. That's the end of the sentence <coughs> on this whole business of the grace of God appearing. So you wake up in the morning, and sometimes you may like to have a new, for some people, some men, it might be good if you thought, well, Maybe I get my wife a cup of tea. She might die of heart attack, but might do it for the first time. But that might be a good thing I can do for her. But not to think about me. Because, you know, when we think about me, we ruin relationships. We don't bless them. It's awful when you see uh, people who have made such a mess of relationships because they have been so self-centered. In fact, they've been self-centered. And rather than saying, what can I give, it's rather, what can I get? Now, the Christian life is about giving. God has given up his only son. The Christian life is about what good deeds you can do. And what it said is that we've been redeemed so we would be zealous for good works. It would be the driving force of our lives. Every day, 
not just occasionally, but every day we are preoccupied with what good we can do for other people. Now I tell you, that's liberating. That brings joy, not that fate called happiness. It brings joy to our lives at the end of the day to know that we've reached out <coughs> and we've thought about other people and we've showed kindness and help in every context and even people we don't know because who knows the good we do may not well be a link in the chain of people coming to know the grace of God because people need to see we're redeemed before they want to believe in our Redeemer. People need to know that to be a Christian is not just some ideological, hard-thinking sort of thing, but it's a joyous experience in which we are taken up, not with ourselves, not asking what is, the, the what, is, what is it that Australia can do for me, but what can I do for others in my context. And it, that is within the abilities of every Christian person. No one can say, well, I need a theological training for that. That's not true. Or that's just for the people we pay. Because after all, church is about sit up, look up, sing up, and then buzz off. And that's about the totality of what life is about in the Christian context. But it's not. It's not about those sorts of things. It's about what can I contribute? How can I bless? And I can bear testing my own life. If I live like that, it is such a blessing. I feel a sense of liberty. I feel a sense of joy, which is a byproduct. I suddenly realize that my life can be a blessing. And I said to my children, <coughs> there are only two things I want in life for you. One is that you should be a Christian by conviction. Number two, on the day you die, lots of people turn up to your funeral and they thank God they knew you because you are such a blessing to them. That, I said to my two children, are my only ambitions for you. You can sweep the streets, I don't care what else you do, but it matters to me on the day you die that your life should have been one of untold blessing to as many people as whose lives you touched. And that would be my prayer this morning also in this congregation that at, at the day that you die, people will rejoice that they have known you and you have been not a negative but a positive to them in their lives. And that's why the end result is that Christ has gone to the cross to experience the horror of the consequence of hell so that we could have heaven. All this I did for thee. The grace of God says... Now what have you done for me? What good deeds? You have to be zealous to be driven by such goodness that's been shown to you by God that expresses itself in terms of the way that you relate to others. It was very important to get the whole message, the Battle of Waterloo. It was very important that the disciples got the whole message on Easter Day. And it's very important that you and I should get this very simple, straightforward letter, lesson that the grace of God is not just the ticket, it's the trainer. It trains us up to live godly and righteous and, and sober lives, to wait for God's Son for heaven, and in the meantime to be people who are zealous to what good they can do. 
God bless you, and as you leave the doors of this church, leave saying, Lord, what good can I do this day? And make it the prayer of your life. So you get to the end of the sentence. And on that day when you stand before Christ, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, because you have been zealous for the blessing of others. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our loving Heavenly Fathers, we bow in your presence. We recognize that we can be such self-centered people. And Father, our prayer this morning is, in, in the light of all that you have done for us, we pray, Father, make us people who are so grateful, who are so motivated, that we be people who want to be zealous for good works, and that men and women will see our good works, our good deeds. And the day of visitation, they'll know the gospel is true and it's supernatural because, Lord, they've seen us living that gospel of the grace of God in our zealousness for the way we live. And these prayers we ask in the name of him who went about doing good and whose greatest good we celebrate on that day in which he hung on the cross for our redemption. We pray this in his name. Amen.